Scripture lesson for this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1 through 12. Uh, And with the prophets, it's always intense, so get ready. Uh, Here we go. Listen now for God's word to you. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interests on the fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations You shall be called repairers of the breach and restorers of streets to live in. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there's a a somewhat famous story that's told by Jim Wallace. And Jim Wallace is the, uh, he's a pastor, he's the founder, and he's the former editor-in-chief of Sojourners Magazine. And so the story takes place um, during his first year in seminary. And and Jim Wallace, it didn't take long for him to find a a group of like-minded seminarians who were interested in figuring out what the Bible had to say about those who experienced poverty, those who were unjustly treated, and Christian responsibility towards those groups of people. And seminary students, especially in their first year, are always overzealous. And I can tell you that from personal experience. And so... Wallace and these other students began to look through the Bible to find every single verse that had something to say about the poor, about poverty, about those who are hungry, about those who are unjustly treated. And they found thousands of verses in the Bible that speak on those subjects. In fact, in the Old Testament, it is the second most common theme, second only to idolatry. And often in the Old Testament, those two things are linked together. They found a very similar situation in the New Testament. One out of every 16 verses talked about those issues, and uh, one out of every 10 in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, discussed how 
what our responsibility is to those who experience injustice or hunger or poverty or those sorts of things. But one of the more passionate members of the group wanted to try an experiment. I told you that seminary students are overly zealous. I want you to keep that in mind. Uh, he decided to go grab an old Bible and a new pair of scissors, and he decided he was going to cut out every single reference to the poor, to the hungry, to the oppressed that he found in the Bible. He started snipping away at that old Bible, and he, uh, the Hebrew prophets fared the worst in this little experiment. Um, the prophet Amos, who said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Those verses were snipped away. Those, those words that Martin Luther King quoted during the civil rights movement. Or the verses that we just read from Isaiah, that the fast that God chooses is to loosen the bonds of injustice and to let the oppressed go free. Snip, snip, snip. Or those beloved words from the prophet Micah. What does the Lord require of us but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. Those two were cut away. And then we get to the New Testament and those beloved words of Mary that she, we hear during the season of Advent, the, the, the Magnificat, what, uh, that, that God has cast down the powerful from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly, that God has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty-handed. These words, this prayer of a, a peasant woman living underneath the heel of an empire, snip, snip, snip. That first sermon that Jesus gives in his home synagogue in Nazareth, some of my favorite words that Jesus ever spoke, quoting the prophet Isaiah, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. Those words, too, were cut away. Gone was the Sermon on the Mount. Gone was the, the section after Pentecost where all the believers gathered everything together and there was no need among them. Uh, gone were those beautiful words from the book of James, show me faith without works and I'll show you a faith that is dead. By the time this, this zealous seminary student was done snipping away, that Bible was barely holding together anymore. It was literally falling apart in his hands. A Bible without references to the poor, to the hungry, to the needy, and our responsibility towards them is a Bible that is falling apart. And it seems to me that as often as God has spoken to us on these subjects, that uh, it is so easy for us throughout the course of our Christian faith to forget that God calls us to care for the poor, the hungry, the unjustly treated, that we have a responsibility to them. And that's why God appoints prophets, people who are in tune with these things, in tune with that responsibility, in tune with that, that call to, to care for those who are hungry or poor or unjustly treated. And that's what's happening here in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is reminding the people that this has always been close to the core of God's own heart. He's speaking to the returned exiles. I want you to think back to a few weeks ago to the very first sermon in this series and the little history lesson I gave all of you. I know that you all hang and remember on every single word that I've ever spoken to you. Um, that's what we were talking in the back. That's what freaked me out the first time I was here is that you all were listening. And um, <laughs> it was unusual. I mean, it was. <laughs> So remember, we have this event known as the Babylonian exile. The people of God are carried away uh, into exile in Babylon, at least a good number of them. And um, it becomes this sort of central event in the Old Testament. A lot of reflection happens on this. Um, a lot of what we know as the Old Testament, a lot of what becomes the Old Testament 
is compiled and put together in the midst of the Babylonian exile. So, so much of what we read in the Old Testament is the reflection on this event. How did it happen? How did we end up here? How did we get here? The prophets, too, have their own reflections on this event. And for them, what they see is that a big reason why the Babylonian exile happened was because of the injustice of their society. That the poor were not cared for, the hungry were not fed, the needy were sold for a bribe and a pair of sandals, it was what it says in the book of Amos. There was injustice in the courts, the immigrants and the refugees were not cared for. In their minds, injustice is one of the reasons why the Babylonian exile happens. And, And so in a lot of ways... They see the Babylonian exile as kind of a form of judgment. And I think that that makes us kind of squirm and recoil a little bit to think about God's judgment because we've kind of been conditioned to think about judgment sort of as this 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 thing of punishment. But let's reclaim, let's reframe what judgment is all about, at least according to the prophets. It's about correction. That if there's a society that has become incredibly unjust, judgment may not be such a bad thing. It might be a, a correction to what has gone wrong. And that's what the prophets see. It's not about punishment. It's not about lasting forever. And the Babylonian exile doesn't last forever either. It lasts roughly 50 years or so. And then they fi- the people finally return back home. Um, you have this, these two generations that are born in Babylon who never experienced uh, pre-exile life. And so, as one scholar says, Isaiah is in a lot of ways this book that is trying to help the people to understand what happened and, and how they got there and where to go and how to move forward. So that's who Isaiah is speaking to, these returned, uh, these returned exiles. And so they're in the process of rebuilding their lives, rebuilding their social, their economic, their political lives, their communal lives. But they're also in this process of rebuilding their spiritual lives. They're back home. And so how can we serve God? What does God want from us? And so the practice that they take on is this practice of fasting, which to me is the most miserable spiritual practice there is, this denying yourself of food. And not only are they denying themselves food, but they're also taking time to pray, which is common with fasting. But while they're doing it, they're covering themselves with sackcloth and ashes. They're making themselves look as miserable and pious as they possibly can. Everybody in the world knows when you're fasting. This is what God wants from them, right? This is what they think God wants from them. But all the while, they feel no closer to God. We're we're fasting, they say. We're, We're denying ourselves breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and yet you don't see us. You don't hear us when we pray. Isn't this what you want from us? They're they're genuinely confused. So you can imagine their surprise when the prophet Isaiah shows up. Um, The prophets are not known for being really gifted at pastoral care. Um, They're not going to hold your hand and say, they're there, it's okay. Now, they're they're not therapists. They're not going to sit you down on the couch and kind of help you talk through things. Like, they're, they're blunt, they're direct, they don't care if they hurt your feelings. It's kind of a big deal when the prophet shows up. And he he starts speaking to the people. He says, God says to him, shout out like a trumpet, don't hold back. I remember I had this roommate in college who still to this day is the heaviest sleeper I have ever known. Um, And he would often oversleep his alarm because he wouldn't hear it, and he'd miss like big presentations in class. Um, So in order for him to start waking up, he had to get his alarm clock and set it to an unreasonable decibel volume. Um, And the problem was it would wake everybody else up in the room, but not him. 
and we started calling his alarm clock the trumpet of judgment, um, because that's what it felt like. It sort of felt like the end of the world. Like it's, this is how Isaiah speaks to the people. He says, do you think that this is what God wants for you to fast? Look, you're fasting and you're praying, but all the while, you are oppressing your workers. Did you see that in the passage? You're fasting and you're praying, but you're striking with an evil fist. You are doing acts of violence. You're missing the point, Isaiah seems to be saying. You have a Bible that is full of holes, a spiritual practice that is full of holes. You're, you're doing the same old things that your ancestors did. The fast that God chooses, Isaiah says, is not one where you, like, it's commonplace during the season of Lent where we deny ourselves chocolate or coffee or fast food and then Easter Sunday comes and we're in the, back in the drive-thru at McDonald's again. The fast, I say that from personal experience, the, the fast, <laughs> the fast that God chooses, Isaiah says, is to loosen the bonds of injustice, to break the yokes of oppression, to bring the homeless poor into your own house, to bring them into that place of concern, to, to make sure that the hungry have enough to eat, to make sure that the naked are clothed. This is the fast that God chooses. In a lot of ways, what Isaiah is doing is he is reminding the people of God's dream for the world, that God has a dream for the world, and that dream is that everybody would have enough. It's, it's a dream that not only would the, the hungry have a meal for the moment, but that they wouldn't have to worry where their next meal is coming from. It's, it's a dream not only that the poor would be objects of concern, but that we would question why are there poor in our societies in the first place. It is this dream of peace and justice and equity. It's a dream of the, of the world as it could and should be. The prophets are caretakers of God's dream. They, they live with a certain sense of what Walter Brueggemann calls the prophetic imagination, an ability to imagine a different sort of world. That is, is who the prophets are. And, and, the, and the prophets, I think, have this, this they, they're in tune with something really important when it comes to God's dream. That God's dream is not something that God is ever willing to do alone and by God's self, but one that always invites other people to participate in. That God is always looking for us, for you and I, to help and to build that dream. That dream is one of justice. And we use that word a lot these days. It's kind of become a, a buzzword in mainline denominations like ours. It's become a, a phrase that progressive clergy like myself love to throw around here, there, and everywhere. But, but what, do, what do we mean when we talk about justice? And I've shared this with you all before, and if you were at the Visioning Summit yesterday, I shared it there too, and um, don't tune out. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes is one that comes from Desmond Tutu, the, art, the, the, the late Archbishop of South Africa, the post-apartheid leader. He says that there comes a point where we have to stop just pulling people out of life's river, but we have to go upstream and figure out why they're falling in. To me, that is the most succinct summary of what we mean when we talk about justice. It is not only attending to the immediate needs of people, but figuring out why do they have those needs in the first place. How are they falling in? Why are they falling in? Maybe who is pushing them in? I remember my last, uh, my last year in seminary, during my last uh, field education internship, one of the things that I did was um, I would uh, volunteer a couple times a month at this day shelter in one of the suburbs of uh, Philadelphia. And 
Uh, it was early morning. They would serve breakfast. It was a Christian-based day shelter. So I was there as a seminary student to offer the devotional time, which felt kind of useless. When people were hungry, I'm sitting there offering them Bible verses. But, um, but uh, I remember um, sitting there one day, and I was listening. I overheard the conversation between two of the guests. And they were talking about what the rest of their day was going to look like. They had gotten breakfast. And, uh, you know, all of these folks were people who experienced homelessness, some sort of housing insecurity, economic insecurity. And when you and I think about our day after we finish breakfast, we think about the responsibilities we have. We think about the errands we have to run, where the kids have to go, grandkids, whatever it might be. But as I overheard this conversation, these two guests were talking to each other, making a list of what shelters, what nonprofits were open so they could get lunch and get dinner. Their whole day was based around where they could get their most basic of needs met. And I remember thinking how difficult of a way to live that must be, to scrape and to claw just to have your daily needs meet, to get your daily bread. Most of us, we go to the fridge. Some of us, like myself, we go to the fridge more often than others. But having to scrape and to claw for what you what you need, just to have your daily meal. And what I realized in that moment was that what my neighbors needed for me, what my poor homeless neighbors needed for me, was not just bread for the moment and not just a devotional for their souls, but they needed somebody to advocate for a better world for them. That they, are, they constantly found themselves on the very edge of life's river and they found themselves constantly falling in and what they needed was people who could look and to see and to work for a world where they weren't constantly falling in to life's river. As we have been processing our call together, who are we as a congregation over the last few weeks? And uh, yesterday we had the Visioning Summit, which was amazing. If you weren't there, you should get a summary of that because it was really great. Uh, Terry will give you a whole rundown of the whole six hours. Uh, just talk to him in the back. Um, as we've been processing that call, uh, one of the things that's really apparent to me, really obvious to me, is that this is a congregation that has an enormous heart, a heart that cares deeply for those who are hurting, those who are hungry, those who have need. Um, it is part of our DNA um, that we go to, we work with SOS, we go to the Crossroads Soup Kitchen, we have donation drives, that whenever we have one, the, the donations are always overflowing, uh, always more than anyone expects. For all of those who find themselves in life's river, there is Greenfield with a hand outstretched ready to lift them up. But what I also want to suggest to us this morning is that uh, I think what our neighbors also need from us, what they deserve from us, what is an expression of love from us, is that we head upstream and find out why is it that they're falling in. That what our hungry and poor neighbors need from us is not just something for the moment, but for us to figure out what is it that is causing them and creating them to be objects of concern in the first place. In a world that is living post the events of George Floyd and uh, the realization of the racial injustices that still exist around us, this festering wound in our nation that has still not healed, what it needs from us are people who are willing to work for racial justice. In a world where we are becoming more and more aware of the climate crisis, which is not just an ecological situation, but a humanitarian one, one that often affects those from the very margins, what it needs from us are, are people who are willing to walk upstream to figure out why people are falling in. This is a congregation with an enormous heart, 
and compassion that overflows and spills over from everything that it does. It is part of our DNA. And I think some of that love belongs upstream as well. The longs upstream, figuring out what structures, what systems, what things are causing the people that we care for to become objects of concern in the first place. To move upstream. Who is God calling us to be? I think one of the things that God is calling us to be is people of justice. So let's head upstream and find out why is it that people are falling in? And how can we make a difference? Thanks be to God. Amen.